Tonight's reading is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, which can be found on page 1234 of the Church Bible. That's page 1234, Revelation 2, starting at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. This might make sense later, but no promises. Um, it's the first Sunday of Advent, as we've heard, and uh, the foyer, as you've noticed, is full of Christmas trees. Most of us have started our Christmas shopping. Um, some of us are leaving it till Christmas Eve. Uh, Lights are going up, so why on earth are we doing a series in Revelation, you might ask? Um, Because Advent means coming. Um, Advent isn't just about Jesus' first coming. Advent isn't just about chocolate calendars. Advent is about Jesus' first and second coming. Now, counting down the days to Christmas is just so exciting as a kid. And one of my core childhood memories is from Christmas Eve at Grandma Evans's house. Um, she'd been keeping my brother and I busy playing lots of Christmassy games while my parents were at home peeling Brussels sprouts and wrapping presents. Um, and uh, evening arrived and finally it was time for Dad to come and pick us up. We stepped out of Grandma's front door into a cold, crisp Christmas Eve night. And I remember at this very early age, just standing perfectly still and shutting my eyes and listening intently, just in case I could hear the sound of jingling bells. I longed to hear Father Christmas just flying overhead. I knew that the waiting was almost over. And uh, this is a season of eager expectation and waiting, isn't it? Uh, At this time of year, we Christians put ourselves in the shoes of children all over the world, waiting. And indeed, we put ourselves in the shoes of Old Testament Israel, waiting for the coming of the Messiah. Now, just as then, we count God's promises, longing for Jesus to come. And uh, in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, in these seven letters to seven churches, we hear Jesus' words, I will come. I will soon come. Until I come, I will come. I will come to you. I am coming soon. That's what we're going to read during this series. But until he does come, our church is in danger. 
until he comes, we, you and I, are in danger. The moral tide of our society is against us and many churches are struggling to keep their heads above water. Church leaders are falling all around us, dragging their churches down into scandal and false gospels. We individual Christians are facing trial after trial, crises after crises, testing our faith. Yes, Jesus is coming soon, but will we be found faithful when he does? Our church is in danger. And that's the situation that the first readers of Revelation found themselves into. Danger after danger, um, a minority faced by persecution, growing persecution from the majority. So Jesus wrote to them seven letters to seven churches. Each of them highlights a particular danger faced by a particular church. And in each letter, Jesus gives the path to overcome, the path to be victorious, the path for us to walk until he comes. Now, we might not fit the description of any one particular church out of these seven. Um, But if you uh, cast your eye briefly over all of them, um, if you can do that briefly, you'll notice that each of them ends with Jesus saying, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's churches, plural. Each letter, yes, it highlights a particular situation faced by a particular church. But what Jesus says to one church is also relevant to all the others. What Jesus says to the church in Ephesus is also relevant to Pergamum. What Jesus says to Pergamum is also relevant to every single local church around the world. We're meant to read each other's mail. We might not be Ephesus, but what Jesus says to them really matters for us. And as we read this evening, we're going to come across a potentially fatal danger for Christ's church, Banstead. But we're also going to be taught how to be victorious over it. Here's a summary of Jesus' letter to Ephesus. It's going to come up on the screen. Dear church, you're a well-made lamp, but you aren't shining. So listen up. That's where the lamp comes in. Uh, Let's start off with dear church in verse 1. Jesus says to the Apostle John, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now, the angel of the church in Ephesus is a bit of a mystery, I'll just be honest. Angel literally means messenger, so some people guess that it could mean a literal human postman, or it could mean the human pastor of that church that kind of delivers God's messages. But the thing is, churches back then didn't have single pastors. So actually, what's more likely is that it is an angelic messenger in view. So in chapter one, verse one, if you want to flick back there, you'll see that God gives his people the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Um, So I think it is an angel in view here. But either way, the point is that Jesus has a message. Jesus has a message for his church. And here's the first line of the letter. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. In chapter one, John saw a vision that made him fall to his feet like a dead man. He saw the risen Jesus. And each of the seven letters to the seven churches highlights a particular part of that vision that's going to be particularly relevant to them. So Jesus reminds uh, Ephesus 
that he is the one who holds seven stars in his hand. Now that's a striking image, isn't it? Can you picture that? Someone holding seven stars in their hand? Powerful, isn't it? But also if you know Revelation chapter 1, you'll know that those stars represent the angels, the messengers to God's churches. So Jesus is, well, what the church needs to know is that all of God's messages come from Jesus. The message they're about to hear comes with all the authority of Christ. And Jesus reminds Ephesus that he is the one walking among the seven lampstands. Um, Here's a modern-day lampstand. It functions a little bit different to the ones back then, but if you imagine Jesus in the middle of seven of these lamps, and you might imagine him walking in between them. He walks over to this one and he examines it and he can see what's right about it. He can see what's beautiful about it. He knows exactly how it works. He is intimately aware of what is going on with this lamp. He knows what the church, oh, the lampstands, they represent the churches. And this vision communicates that Jesus is intimately aware of his churches. Where have I got to? Hmm. He knows exactly what's going on. He knows what this church is doing well. He knows where they're lacking. And that's true for us, Christchurch Banstead, here today. Um, yes, in Revelation, there are seven literal churches um, from Asia Minor mentioned here. But the number seven in Revelation represents completion. Um, specifically, uh, number seven represents completion in holiness. So the seven churches here are a symbol of all local gatherings of God's holy people throughout the world and throughout time. So this, this image is relevant for us. Jesus, the one who holds seven stars in his hand, he has a message for Christ Church Banstead. Jesus, the one who walks between the lampstands, lamp he knows exactly what's going on at Christ Church Banstead. He knows our strengths, he knows our weaknesses, he knows what's happening in our Christmas programme. Let's continue. Uh, Dear church, (coughs) you're a well-made lamp, verses 2 to 3. That's what we get after the introduction to the letter. Um, I wonder, occasionally you might get asked, what's your church like? How do you respond to that question? What are the distinctives that make this church what it is? Maybe you respond with what we believe as a church. You talk about, we believe in the triune God of love. We believe in Christ's death on the cross. We believe in his resurrection and we look forward to our resurrection one day. We believe that uh, the Bible is authoritative. We believe that it's the word of God. And all these are precious truths, truths that we teach. Perhaps it's um, our church's legacy of pure doctrine, biblical doctrine, that make us what we are. Maybe that's what defines this church. Or maybe you answer the question, what's your church like, by talking about what we do. We're a busy church. We're a church that preaches the gospel. We pray for conversions. We long for the Holy Spirit to be at work. We give to support mission. We have a journey through Narnia. We've got carols coming up, things like that. Perhaps it's our busyness, perhaps it's our biblically faithful deeds that define us 
as a church? Well, when it comes to those categories, pure doctrine and good deeds, the church in Ephesus was a well-made lamp ready to shine brightly uh, for God's glory, made to fill a room with brilliant light with an industrial strength light bulb, made to chase away the darkness of false teaching and bring light to the shadowy corners of sin. We're talking about a really well-made lamp. Um, Let's learn a little bit more about the lamp at Ephesus. Uh, The city it was in was uh, a very significant one in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, had over a quarter of a million residents. And the church, too, is one of the most significant in the whole of the New Testament. Um, We here have many years of gospel preaching behind us, but the ministry at Ephesus really is something else. If you look throughout the New Testament, particularly in Acts, you'll see how uh, Paul visited, um, but it was initially a very brief visit. Instead of staying himself, he left Priscilla and Aquila there to plant the church. And there was a guy called Apollos there. He was a massively gifted preacher. It was a really good start for that church. Um, But Paul, uh, subsequent to that, did return. He came back to Ephesus and he spent two years preaching in that city, in that church, performing astonishing miracles. And so many people came to know the Lord. It was a really wonderful time for this church. What a privilege. Can you imagine two years hearing Paul's preaching? That would have been pretty good. Um, But that's not it. Um, After that, Paul also met with the elders of the church in Ephesus at a subsequent time, and he sent them a letter, uh, which we have in our Bibles. But that's not it. Um, Paul sent his trusty assistant, Timothy, to go and continue the work in Ephesus. 1 and 2 Timothy, written to Timothy while he's in that city, and like, this is just sounding like such a good foundation for a church, isn't it? But still there's more, because according to early church history, when he wasn't on Patmos, the Apostle John's home was Ephesus. Like, that's a church you'd want to be a part of, isn't it? That is a really great history of gospel preaching and good doctrine. And with a ministry of such blessing, it should not come as a surprise to us that our Lord wants to commend them for their good deeds and pure doctrine. The risen Lord says to them, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. When it came to good deeds, the church in Ephesus really knew how to put a shift in. Uh, They knew how to persevere even in the face of hostility. Again, in Acts, we... uh, read of one particular time where they had to deal with horrendous slander from the synagogue and there was a massive riot outside an enormous temple to the god Artemis. But even with all of that going on outside, they just kept on going. And by persevering with their hard work, how about this for um, words of of, uh, commendation? From Acts 19 verse 10, All the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord through them. Great perseverance without growing weary. Um, But there's more to know about this lamp because the greatest uh, danger to the Ephesian church didn't come from the surrounding uh, pagan society. Their greatest danger was the false teaching that came from within, from wicked men. Verse 2 says that they didn't tolerate them, though. 
They'd been warned beforehand. That meeting with the Ephesian elders I told you about. At that time, Paul said to them, Savage wolves will come that will not spare the flock. Um, So you can imagine these elders like shepherds. And uh, they've got their staff in hand. They're standing at the gate to the sheepfold. And they are ready to attack and defend at even the slightest sniff of a wolf. And uh, when these wicked men, these wolves came, these elders were ready for them. They tested their teaching and their claims to be apostles and they found them false. In maintaining pure doctrine, this church cannot be faulted. They preached the gospel, they defended the truth, they endured hostility and they did it all in the name of the Lord Jesus without becoming weary. When it comes to good deeds and pure doctrine, This church was surely a shining light in a dark world. Even the Lord took note. This must be a healthy church, right? Something's wrong. It seemed like this was a shining light, a witness to God in a dark world. But in reality, that light had flickered, faltered, and failed. As we'll see in the next few verses, as a lamp that gives no light, it was soon to be thrown away. I'm not going to throw this away because I quite like this lamp. (laughs) But let this be a warning to us at Christ Church Banstead. Uh, Because the next thing Jesus says is, you aren't shining Uh, We've established that there was something missing. Even though the Ephesian church had been built on a solid foundation, they had lost something that they once had. Something that's even more important than good deeds and pure doctrine. What is it? What was the problem? Verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Jesus just puts his finger on the problem, doesn't he? Remember that this church, the whole church, is Jesus' bride whom he loves dearly. So he doesn't enjoy criticising them. But he wants the Ephesians to know the seriousness of their situation. He has something against them. They have forsaken. They have abandoned the love they had at first Um, What is this love that Jesus is referring to here? Does it mean their love for the Lord? Does it mean their love for one another? Does it mean their love for the world? It's hard to tell. And most probably, John is being deliberately vague here because he actually means all three of those things. They've left their love for God. They've forsaken their love for one another. They've abandoned their love for the lost. And it's such a tragedy that this could happen to such a blessed church. In defending the gospel, they forgot its substance and significance. That God had loved them with an indescribable, unimaginable, undeserved love. That God showed this love through Jesus' saving death and resurrection. That God's spirit was a down payment on a forever family home that would last into all eternity. Forgetting the significance and magnitude of this, 
They no longer remembered to love him in return. And may this never be true for us. Just as shocking was their lack of love for one another. It's almost unbelievable that this could happen to those who received the letter to the Ephesians. And we're going to preach Ephesians next term. And the whole thing is about supernatural loving community. Uh, The whole letter is about the church bound together in the unity and love of Christ. It's about God's family. And yet maybe after years of conflict with false teachers, after decades of defending doctrinal purity, they created a culture of suspicion that left no room for love. They'd been fighting so long that they forgot how to stop. And what about their love for the world? This was the church through whom, as I said earlier, the whole of Asia Minor, the whole of modern-day Turkey was reached with the gospel. They used to love sending out missionaries. And yet somewhere along the line, they started focusing inward. And they lost their passion for the lost. How utterly, utterly tragic. So what's the solution? Uh, Remember. Remember. Um, Verse 5, I slightly prefer it in the ESV. Remember from where you have fallen. Jesus wants us to remember the vibrant love of God that once made our very souls tremble. He wants us to remember the love for one another that used to bind us so tightly. He wants us to remember the love for the lost that used to motivate our witness. They and we must remember and repent. Um, For them, repenting is going to mean two things. Uh, You can see uh, in verse 5 still, do the things you did at first. That's really interesting. Repentance for them doesn't mean giving up all their good deeds and hard work. It doesn't mean becoming a church that has no ministry programs. It doesn't mean remodeling everything towards an emotional experience of love. No, it means doing, doing the things you did at first. There is no love without doing. There's no love for God without serving him. There's no love for one another without sacrificing for each other. There's no love for the lost without witnessing to them. They need to do the things they did at first. Deeds motivated by love. Working hard, motivated by love. Persevering, motivated by love. And also, for them repenting, is not going to mean embracing everyone and anyone, no matter what they believe. They have to keep hating what Jesus hates. Uh, we see that in verse 6. Jesus says, but you have, uh, but you have this in your favour. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Um, don't worry too much about who these people are just yet, because we're going to meet them in more detail in a week's time. Um, But for now, it's enough to know that they're referred to elsewhere as overindulging in pagan society um, through things like sexual sexual immorality and food sacrificed to idols. It's really good that these people hate those practices. Repenting of their lack of love does not mean they have to embrace everybody no matter what they believe. Let's get back to the big points. God is love. The church that doesn't display love doesn't display God. 
The church that doesn't display love doesn't display God. They are a well-made lamp, but they do not shine. They just don't. They're useless. They've got no purpose. And so Jesus says, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. He's not saying that individual Christians are going to become unsaved. He's saying that unless something changes soon, he's going to come and close their church down. He's going to shut their doors, close their ministries, and bring an end to their witness. Jesus will make sure that the Ephesian church is no more. And the sad reality is that that promise came true. There is no Ephesian church today. The ruins of the city are a popular tourist destination, and the wider region is 90% Muslim. Jesus did take away their lampstand. And their story is a warning to Christchurch Banstead. Our history of gospel preaching is no guarantee of future blessing. Pure doctrine and good deeds do not equal a healthy church. Being biblically faithful in our deeds and maintaining pure doctrine, they are important. Yes, of course they are. But if that's all our witness comes down to, then we are nothing more than a well-made lamp that doesn't shine. And if a lamp gives no light, no matter how well it's made, soon it will be removed. I love that we're a busy church. I love that we're a church that defends pure doctrine. But if we don't display love, we don't display God. If love isn't the motivation behind everything we do, then Christchurch Banstead will cease to exist. Jesus will shut our doors, he'll cancel our ministries, he'll take away our witness, and in 10 years' time, Christchurch Banstead won't exist anymore. On reflection, I do think we are a largely loving church. I do. That's a really good thing. But we still need to take this warning seriously. And I think there are a few red flags that we need to be aware of. Um, Here are three. Our level of busyness is dangerous. Um, Things are better now than they were a few years ago, I believe. But when we put on as many events and ministries as we do, our faith can become focused on what we're doing. In that space, church becomes routine. In that space, God becomes just a boss with a to-do list. And we forget that we're here to worship and to delight and to adore. Second red flag. Our growth could dilute our love for outsiders. A few Sundays ago, there was a new family that almost left without anyone talking to them. Um, They weren't looking to rush away quickly. They were open to talking, but no one approached them. Um, Thankfully, a member of staff grabbed them just before they left the car park. Now, even though we do get new people pretty much every other week at this point. Even though we are really full on a Sunday morning, we need to make sure we're still being proactive with outsiders who come in. We need to make sure that we are still loving the world outside. Red flag number three. 
our independence could become isolation. Yes, we might love our church family here, but what about our wider church family? Yes, we rightly do not partner with those who distort the gospel, but what about others, other churches who do preach the gospel? There are always reasons not to, but we must be praying for and meeting with other gospel-preaching churches. We need to be praying for and learning about our brothers and sisters across the world too. We can't just look inwards. If we're a church of love, then we need to look outwards. And I really want CCB to be shining for a very, very long time. So let's beware the danger of loveless orthodoxy. Let's be a church that loves. A church that loves God. A church that loves one another. A church that loves the world outside. Dear church, you're a well-made lamp, but you aren't shining. So listen up. Here's the final part of Jesus' letter. Verse 7. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit (coughs) says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Um, So far, we've had a fearful warning to make us repent. But here we have a promise to keep us going. Loveless, Loveless orthodoxy is a terrible danger, but the one who conquers has nothing to fear. The one who does remember and does repent has a wonderful promise to hold on to. Jesus will give that person access to the tree of life in the paradise of God. There will be a new Eden where God will walk in perfect loving fellowship with his people once more. And this time it will be forever. This is for those who are victorious. Being victorious doesn't mean you are perfect. Being victorious doesn't mean you never drop the ball when it comes to love. Rather, those who are victorious are not defeated by the danger of loveless orthodoxy. Yes, we will drop the ball sometimes, but we remember, we repent, we try again. Yes, sometimes we will let Jesus down, but the victorious person gets back up again in Jesus' strength and keeps on following him regardless. Keep trusting in Jesus. You must. Keep remembering and repenting. You must listen up to what the Spirit says. Because if you do, life forever is yours. Uh, These are challenging words, aren't they? Um, Don't misunderstand me. I don't think we are Ephesus. I don't think this is us. But I do think we need to hear the warning. Because we need to never be Ephesus and we need to keep going following Jesus so that when he comes and he is coming when he is come when he does come we are those who will inherit life forever let's pray father god thank you that you have shown us such extraordinary love and we pray that you would fill us with all your fullness of love, so that we would overflow in our adoration of you, in our willing to sacrifice for our brothers and sisters here, 
and in our willingness to witness to our neighbours and friends, even if it means we get left out in the cold. Father, please keep us from this danger. Please keep us faithful until the day when our Saviour returns. We need your help in this. In Jesus' name, Amen.